Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning. How are we doing, 1115? Oh, man. All right. <laughs> that sounds good. You guys sound great. Uh, I'm Darren. If you are new, I want to welcome you. I'm one of the pastors. And we are in a series called Encounter, Finding God in the Ordinary. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at various stories in the scripture of individuals' encounters with God. And we've been discussing the implications for us today. What does it mean uh, for someone in the scriptures to encounter God in such a way? And what does that look like for us to take their experiences, their understanding of God, and apply it to our ordinary life? Uh, It's my experience that most people live Um, their own lives, um, and they don't live lives through other people, or more importantly, we don't live in the mountaintop experiences, most of us, right? Like most of us, if we've had, you know, a mountaintop experience with God, or if we've had any encounter with God, then Monday comes and we go to our jobs and we drive through traffic and we, you know, do nap schedules with our kids and we, we live our lives in the ordinary places. And um, this series has been an attempt to look at stories of great encounter and ask the question, what does that mean for us in our nine to five? What is that? How do we cultivate a vibrant spirituality um, when we're driving on the 405 in traffic? Does that matter? And yes, that's the answer. Yes, it matters. And we've seen um, through this series, one thing that I was observing is <clears throat> the characters in the scriptures are um, becoming more human to me. Uh, I've been able to relate to these characters, these, these heroes of the faith, you could say, in ways that I haven't been able to. For example, we talked about Moses when we started. And Moses is this great hero in the scriptures. We read about him in Exodus. But then we also see when he has this encounter with a burning bush and the living God, he's full of excuses. He's full of fear and insecurity. And he doubts himself. I mean, how relatable is that? We go to Elijah, and Elijah has this mountaintop experience, a literal mountaintop experience, where fire from heaven comes down and, um, and, and burns up this altar. And there are 450 prophets of Baal marching around it before that. And, and, he, and he basically wins the battle between Baal and God, which God was real, and God wins. And then the next scene is him running for his life because he's full of anxiety and depression about someone trying to kill him. Has anyone here been, uh, had a great experience in life, a great season, and then it was met afterwards by a season of depression? We can relate to these characters. You know, and Asaph, I love Asaph, because he, uh, he writes a psalm, and he was the chief Levite. Uh, he was responsible for an entire nation's spirituality and holiness, and in his psalm, it's a confession that he almost missed it. He almost fell. He almost slipped as a leader because of what? Because he was staring at those that weren't following God and they were f- amassing wealth and they were carefree and they had good health. Has anyone been here uh, tr- living after God and yet there seems to be suffering and your friends who are living the life that whatever outside of God and they're full of, they're, they're full of wealth and they're full of happiness and joy and it just seems like what's going on here? Well, that's the story of Asaph. That's our story too. Or the Samaritan woman. A couple weeks ago we talked about this. The Samaritan uh, was a woman who had no spiritual clue in her body. And she is exposed as a sinner before Jesus. And Jesus meets her 
with kindness and grace and love. Have you ever been in that place where you felt vulnerable and exposed by the circumstances that surround your life and all of a sudden you, you meet with, with God and it's just acceptance and love and grace? We can relate to all these characters and apply them to our ordinary life and that's the point. And um, as we approach Easter next week, we... Um, we're going to talk about Jesus lives, and the, the, that that's quite offensive. In fact, I wore this shirt. They're for sale. They're going to baptize some people with them um, this week, and it was interesting. It's, there's, it's no surprise that people are stealing the signs that say Jesus lives. I, I'm just going to say it to this. Uh, I didn't say this last service, but to this community, it is offensive to say Jesus lives. It's offensive, whether you know this a lot or not. We live in a day and age where it is offensive to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's offensive. People, I mean, I go to the same coffee shops, shops, I put this shirt on, and the people that I love and that know I'm a pastor, for some reason, I got different looks. It was really strange. I felt uncomfortable because it's offensive. So I was thinking as we're approaching Easter, um, I was preparing for, you know, how do I talk about an encounter? There are so many stories as Jesus uh, heads towards the cross. And this is Palm Sunday when Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem with triumph where palm branches are laid before him and people are shouting Hosanna. And as we enter into the last week of his life, this is, a, this is an important season for the church. And we head towards Good Friday before we get to Easter Sunday. What stories are in the text? And I discovered one story um, that I thought has now become the most relatable character in all of the scriptures. Of all the stories we could tell, this one character, every single one of us can relate to, believe it or not, in so many profound ways. And so I wanna introduce this story to you. And in order to do that, we're gonna look at Mark chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, go to the Gospel of Mark. Comes after Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles up front and in the back. Take those Bibles with you. Um, or the, the words will be up on the screen. But what I want to do is just give you a little bit of info about Mark, and then we'll look at 15. First of all, Mark was the first gospel narrative written, um, and it, it's the shortest of all the gospels. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's one of the most unique because it's so condensed. And uh, he skips over lots of details that John and Matthew include in their gospels. Um, but Mark is written to a Roman context, and so it's action-packed, it's quick. It's like the Cliff Notes version of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating book. We've done a whole series on this where we went through it in a year and a half. And Mark, Mark uh, the gospel is very important to know that the context is a Roman audience. And, and here's why. Uh, Mark will spend 10 chapters writing about Jesus's ministry and life. 10 chapters. And he will spend six chapters writing about the last week of Jesus. That's a lot if you compare the 10 of the entire life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus of three years and then six whole chapters on just a week of Jesus' life. That's significant, and here's why. In Roman antiquity, when you wrote about a hero's death, a general or a Caesar, for example, you, the, you would write in detail about the way they died. Because how somebody died in Roman context, spoke of how they lived. And so we, we pick up this stylistically, this approach that, that Mark writes because he's writing to a Roman audience. Now, um, I find it fascinating because there's all sorts of details and stories missed in the first 10 chapters, but we also pick up all these other stories because the narrative slows down 
as Jesus comes into Jerusalem for his last week. The story becomes detailed and intentional. It becomes alive with all sorts of, uh, of stories and people that we miss in other, other gospel narratives. And so that's what you need to know about the gospel of Mark as we approach this. What we've seen so far as we approach 15, and context, context matters when we preach, just so you know, and context matters when you read the scriptures at home. What you need to know is uh, chapter 11 begins the entry into Jerusalem. Jesus is last week and, uh, before he dies. And it, it begins with Jesus comes in. They sing Hosanna. He goes and cleans the temple or cleanses the temple. And then he, um, he, he teaches with authority in the temple. And he, he rebukes religious leaders. And then it, it goes into the Last Supper. He washes his disciples' feet. Uh, eventually, he goes to Gethsemane where he prays the prayer, Lord, take this from me. Um, but he doesn't. He follows God obediently. He gets arrested. They bring him before the Sanhedrin court. While he's there, Peter disowns him. And then while he's at the, the Sanhedrin court, the process of Jesus' death begins. They beat him up. They blindfold him. They hit him with a rod and say, who hit you? And, and the process of Jesus going to the cross begins. And we pick up in 15. And it's early in the morning. And let's read this together. And I want to talk about this encounter. What's significant about this relatable character for us today? Are you with me? Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plan. So the entire Jewish leadership made their plan. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to a guy named Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. So here's the story as we approach the cross. And we're introduced in Mark's gospel to a guy named Pilate. And I want to give us a little history first. So for those of you that love history, here's a little bit of history for context. It's really important that we grasp What's happening in the story for us to know the significance of what we're about to experience? Pilate is a Roman governor, and he became in power at some point and had to reign or rule over a specific region in the Middle East. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Middle East is full of conflict. It has been throughout history, and it still is to today. today. There's so much conflict in the Middle East. It's, it's been the history uh, of Israel, of Palestine, of that region in the Middle East. For, for example, throughout history, Israel had been conquered by lots and lots of foreign powers and rulers. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Seleucides, the Greeks, and then eventually the Romans uh, have all conquered the Middle East, the part where Israel, uh, or now modern-day Palestine, Israel, that area represents, that land that we know where Jerusalem is in Galilee, has been conquered by lots and lots of empires. And um, throughout history, we've seen this happen time and time again. And, and what happens is uh, the Israelites, they, they rebel against the occupying forces in power because it's their land. And we see people emerge throughout history and conquer their foreign occupiers. And what's interesting is there are lots and lots of messianic figures throughout history, throughout Jewish history, that would do this. Uh, 160 AD, there's a guy named Judah Maccabee, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Judas Maccabee, also known as, this was his nickname, Judah the Hammer. Um, I love that name, thought that's great. A few years after Jesus, 60 years after Jesus or so, there's a guy named Simon the Star. Great, these characters are amazing, but they lived in human history and they, they basically organized military campaigns against the occupying forces for Judah 
the hammer, he uh, had to go against Syria, where Syria came in, and they basically dedicated the temple to Zeus, and they occupied Jerusalem, and he did a, check this out, three-year campaign, and it ended when he came into Jerusalem on a horse, defeated Syria, cleansed the temple, and they celebrated singing songs and hymns and parading through the streets of Jerusalem as people pulled off palm branches and laid them at Judah the Hammer's feet because they thought he was the Messiah. Years later, he would be just killed. And that family was placed in power. They became the high priest. And from that family, we have a guy named Herod the Great. Ever heard of him? Okay, and Herod um, also did a similar thing. But what he did is he, when he was living around 40 BC, he was uh, put into power at that time, um, he, he collaborated with the Roman Empire. Okay, so the Romans became um, powerful and they began their conquest and they began to establish kingdoms around the world, extending their empire. And the way they established their kingdom was through peace. And the way peace was established was through sword and military victory. So if you didn't give them taxes and people to, to fund their, their military, they would conquer you. They would utterly destroy you with a sword. They, would, they were just brutal. And they did that all over the empire. So eventually, you had to work with them. And so Herod the Great collaborated with them, and they established Herod as the king of the Jews in 40 BC. And by 9 BC, he, he rebuilt the temple and dedicated it. And there's a guy named Pontius Pilate who is overseeing the Roman region. And he really is the, the, the guy ruling that area on behalf of the Roman Empire. But they liked, the Roman Empire liked to establish local leaders. So Herod was in charge at that time. You with me? Yeah. Lots of history. Really important, I know. Um, but here's the point. The single task Pilate had was this. To keep peace in Israel. His sole purpose was to keep peace in the Middle East for trade reasons, for empire reasons. And what happened um, when right around the Jesus, Jesus was born, actually, there was a revolt at one point, an uprising, an insurrection, uh, where the Roman Empire came in, the military came in, and they crucified 3,000 Jewish men in one day. Around 4 B, uh, AD, near Sephorus, about a few miles from Nazareth, 3,000 people were crucified on the same day. That's what they did to keep peace. Are you with me? So Pilate, Roman governor uh, for the Roman Empire in this one particular region, his sole task is to keep the peace and basically end all insurrections. That's who Pilate is and represents. Are you with me? For those of you that like history, amen. All right, there we go. Let's keep going. <laughs> Verse six. Um, now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from uh, whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? 
asked Pilate, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. So the story now is the story of Jesus put on this platform with a guy named Pilate, and we're introduced to a guy named Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? We don't know much about him at all. We know a lot about Jesus. Jesus, we, we've talked about him. We're here because we believe that he is Lord and he's resurrected and uh, he's been resurrected from the dead. We know that Jesus was the son of God. We know that he healed, he restored, he gave sight to the blind. We know that he cast out demons. He preached the message of loving your enemies, of prayer, of the kingdom of God. Uh, we don't really know much about Barabbas. What the text says about Barabbas is that he's in prison. He was a murderer he uh, started and was a rebel and was a part of an insurrection or a part of an uprising, a revolt. In other words, uh, for Pilate's purposes, Pilate got the right guy. This guy was a terrorist against the Roman Empire. So you have Jesus on this platform and you have Barabbas. Barabbas, a murderer, terrorist, a rebel. And we're introduced to this character. Remember, Mark is very intentional on why he tells the stories that he tells. The story comes on, excuse me, and it goes on, and, and they, there was a custom where they would release one prisoner, the Roman uh, governor would release one prisoner before Passover. And this is a way of bringing peace, of, of extending peace between the Roman Empire and Israel. And, and uh, so he, he presents to them this, this rebel terrorist and Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the chief priest uh, begins uh, to stir the crowd and they shout, release Barabbas, a murdering terrorist, and not Jesus. And what shall we do with Jesus, Pilate asks. Well, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so it says, they shouted louder. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and ha handed him over to be crucified. Handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus is taken. He's flogged, beaten with a whip, 39 lashes. His back is just torn apart. He's stripped naked. He's given a cross. He walks that cross to Golgotha where they strip him of his clothes. They nail his hands and feet. They put him up on top of the mountain where they hurl insults until he dies. But there's this story that we just skip over, this encounter where we see this character named Barabbas who's released Barabbas. And, and for me, I, I, I thought that was just maybe even an interruption to the great narrative of what the cross represents, but I realized that actually this isn't an interruption at all. This is an important part of the gospel narrative. We have to recognize that Pilate released Barabbas. The murderer was set free. The terrorist got off. The rebel deserving death, deserving shackles, deserving the punishment of the cross, got off freely. I mean, this is the important part of the story. This story is not an interruption at all. This is the story, a human picture of the gospel itself. This picture is what Jesus was doing all along. You see, we need Barabbas in the narrative. 
we need to see the injustice of a murderer rebel going free and Jesus taking his place. We have to see it in the narrative that's being demonstrated in the gospel. We need to see exactly in that moment what God was doing. It says in Romans 5, for God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I know it's hard to put yourself in their shoes, in the shoes of a murderer and a terrorist, but I really want to paint this picture. You have to see the injustice of this moment. We need to understand how unfair it is for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. What did Jesus do? He restored lives. He healed the paralytics. He set captives free. He spoke words of truth. He affirmed people. He preached hope and love. And he lived a radical message of generosity. Barabbas doesn't even compare to that profound story of Jesus. Barabbas is nowhere on the platform. Barabbas doesn't deserve his freedom. He doesn't deserve this kind act. He doesn't deserve to get off the hook. But that's the point of the story. That's why we have Barabbas in the narrative. Because you are Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. We are all Barabbas in the gospel narrative. There's no better character in all the scriptures that we we can relate to except for Barabbas standing there shackled, found guilty, waiting to be crucified. And as we stand there looking Jesus in the eyes as they take our shackles off and put it on his hands, we see the injustice of this moment and this transaction. They take our chains off and they put it on Jesus. We're released and he's handed over. We're set free and we walk away and he walks to Golgotha. We need to see Barabbas because we need to be reminded over and over again of what Jesus did that Jesus willingly takes the place of murderers and terrorists, the worst kinds of people you can possibly imagine. And it says that Barabbas was released. I have one observation today, and that's this. Barabbas was released. Barabbas was released. You see, Barabbas was released. Barabbas was released. That, what, what do you think his response was? Do you think his response once he was released was to go back into the jail cell, put on his shackles and live under the Roman authority because he was set free? And yet how many of us have been set free and yet we live in the bondage of sin, of shame, of addiction, of lust, of lies, of false identity, of self-hatred, and we live in the, the bondage of these chains that have been cut off and taken away. We live as prisoners when Jesus takes our place and says, go, Did Barabbas go back into the cell? Did Barabbas celebrate his freedom? We don't know. It says Barabbas was released. Barabbas was released. You see, Barabbas is a reminder of the most offensive reality of the gospel. That no good deed, no discipline, no right thinking, no spiritual system, 
no therapy, no marriage, no car, no, no house, no money will ever save you. No philosophy will ever save you. Yoga will not save you. Muhammad will not save you. Buddha will not save you. Spiritualism will not save you. Being a kind person will not save you. Jesus is the only person, the man and God who saves, period. He is the only way, the only life, and the only truth. It is the only, the only thing that can save us is the grace of a kind God who is willing to take your place when you deserve the righteous punishment of death and judgment. You see, that's the Christian message. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's Jesus who saves. It's Jesus who saves. You're not gonna fix your marriage. Jesus can help you with that. But then Barabbas was released. And I know, because I put myself in those shoes. If I was standing there and I'm watching Jesus taking my place, taking off my chains, my shackles, the things that I deserve, I, I think I would think in that moment probably what most of us would think and just say, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't take my, you can't take away my, I deserve this shame. I deserve, these are my sins. This is my lust. This is my addiction. This is my loss of control, my anger. This is my life of, uh, of alcohol abuse, of drug abuse. This is, this is my fourth marriage. This is my stuff. I deserve these chains. I deserve that cross. And he just grabs them and he says, no, you don't. Give them to me. Let me have your shame. Let me have your sin. Let me have your failed marriage. Let me have it all. Go. You're released. Be free. Live. And we stand there naked with the injustice of grace that it's too good to be true. You stand there fully exposed and vulnerable and naked and forgiven. And he says, go and live your life. Be free. Your past doesn't define you. Your job doesn't define you. Your sins don't define you. I define you. Go, be free. Jesus takes all of the shame and sin and pain and he says, be released. It's done. Your work here is finished. Just receive it. I love the story of Barabbas. I love it. The name Barabbas is a Hellenized name for an Aramaic name. And the Aramaic name is Bar Abba. It means son of the father. You see, Jesus took the place of all the sons and daughters of the father. That's the story of the gospel. We are Barabbas, the sons and daughters of the Father, set free and released. And I just have to ask the question, what are you gonna do with your freedom? What are you gonna do with your freedom? Are you gonna try to earn it now that you've been given grace and work your way to show that you're good enough? It will never work. Are you gonna sit in the, in the prison cells of life shackled by sin and shame and guilt and addiction or will you choose to walk in freedom? Will you walk away saying, yeah, I'm great? 
Or will you come to the cross and say thank you? Because the only response fitting to Barabbas being released is to walk straight to Jesus and say thank you. Because he's gonna ask you to live a free life. And that is the gospel narrative. That it's too good to be true. That you can't earn it. You can never do enough good deeds. You can't buy it. You can't achieve it. The only response that we have in the Christian story is to receive God's grace that he's already poured out for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. And this is why we need Barabbas. The story of a loving God who longs to be in relationship with you. The story of a God who's working to restore all things back to its proper fitting and place. The story of a God who takes the place of murderers, rebels, liars, adulterers, thieves, and failures, and everything else in between. The story of a God who loves you as you are and not as you should be because that is the Christian story. And that's what we head into as we go to Good Friday is recognizing the cost of Barabbas being set free the sons and daughters of the Father being set free. And I want to invite you into the story this week to live in a response to what you've heard. And maybe you're not connecting emotionally now to the fact that you are Barabbas, but you are Barabbas. You stand condemned, shackled, but it's only Jesus who can liberate you. Amen? So what are you going to do with your freedom? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.